on this episode of TR Talk. The biggest message I have for you, no matter what you're doing, is just persistence. Mm. So much of the game is just continuing to do it. And that sounds overly simple, but truly, it's all just about continuing to wake up and do it and just realize, looking around and realizing how many people have your back who you may not realize on a day-to-day basis. Um, but you're not alone. Keep going, and we'll crush it together. Good morning, and welcome to another episode of the TR Talk Podcast. This is your host, Tommy Tahoe Lemo, and I help millennials to fast-track their personal development and kick ass. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm fired up to give you an interview with Allie McKee. Uh, and who is Allie? Allie is currently the CEO of Stick AI, um, a small SaaS startup. But her trajectory is uh, very unique, to say the least. Um, you know, she started off selling coasters in college as her side hustle, got nicknamed Coaster Girl. Um, you know, went through, um, you know, a lot of different. Um, transitions. She worked at Bain for a while. She moved to South Africa where she was teaching entrepreneurial leadership uh, to the youth in Africa, which is pretty crazy. We talked about all this. Um, And then, you know, she just felt this fire within her um, that eventually led to becoming stick. Um, But she just needed to, this idea took over her life. It was an obsession. So she talks about that. She talks about her journey, um, about what is success to her, um, how she deals with hearing no all the time. And my favorite part is when she says um, she goes on a rant about sponging, you know, really trying to soak up information from people. Um, I thought that was brilliant. I thought it was awesome. Um, And I hope you guys really enjoy this one. If you do find any value, just a quick plug, please. Head on over to wherever you're listening to this. Give a review. Five stars, please. Share, subscribe, um, and you can see all the show notes, and you can see all more content, newsletter, blogs, videos, everything on TomAlamo.com. But for now, I'm going to bring you into this interview with Allie McKee. Enjoy. All right, Allie McKee, welcome to the show. Welcome to TR Talk. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited to do this one. And um, let's get right on into it. I'm very fascinated by your path of entrepreneurship um, and starting off in oil painting and years later now you're the CEO of a SaaS company. And I've never met anyone that has that path before. So I'd love to hear if we take it back, you know, five, six, seven years ago, um, you know, when you're graduating from school and how that process came to be. Yeah, absolutely. So the theme for me, if you look at this sort of winding trajectory, the the theme has been has been common uh, and consistent rather in that it's always been about visual communication and really helping people connect through images. So my very first job, I'll take you back to high school days, was actually teaching art, right, and and helping helping other people communicate through images, and then I took that skill, you know 
even from oil painting to teaching, I taught a class in college called Art for Accountants <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, took that, that same process really, even as a management consultant at Bain, you know, teaching others how to take those, those visual principles and apply them to slides to make better meetings for, for you know, C-level executives for mm. Fortune 500s. Interesting. And so was that, I'm interested to see, because I see the clear comparison of how that came to be stick and, and where that's led, but I want to take it even further back. Like when you were a kid, were you always drawing? Were you selling art in like elementary school? Is that like a passion of yours? And, and the reason I ask that is I've been listening a lot to uh, James Altucher. Do you know who that is? Um, so he was a guest on the show a while ago and he always, he's been saying, constantly like try to do the things that you did when you were like 11 years old and you know it's funny like I ran a sports magazine when I was like 10 and I was like writing things and I was like pretending to do interviews and stuff and like that's what like was you know I was passionate about that and now I'm kind of doing this so I'd I'd have to imagine you were all over that like Mm -hmm. 20 years ago Mm -hmm. so I would say two stories I'd share. My seventh birthday was a game changer for me because I got a book called How to Draw Like Disney from my grandmother. And I was a huge Disney fan. I mean, I literally had, I was, you know, had two versions of the VHS, my favorite VHS movies because I'd wear them down. Um, And so when I saw that this book actually broke down, okay, how to draw Mickey. First draw a circle. Okay, I can draw a circle. Now draw another circle. That's his ear. Great, I can do that. Now I'll draw another circle. You know, and breaking it down into steps, and I just practiced. I had a chalkboard in our playroom, and I would just practice. And I'd be like, hey, Mom, look at my new Mickey. And she was like, it looks like the same one you showed me two minutes ago. But I just practiced and practiced and practiced. And then, you know, in terms of actually both my parents were lawyers, not, not necessarily visual artists. And I remember going to work with my mom, uh, and t- stealing post-it notes from the supply closet and I would make flip books out of them you know like draw draw out like a little man walking or you know I would I would make these storyboards I remember one time she she you know took my friend and and me back from from school and like she pulled as we were sitting in the trunk and she opened it and I had storyboarded the entire trunk with wow. like you know all these drawings and the story and she was like oh my god what's wrong with my daughter but it's it has always been a passion a passion for me and it's something that's sort of just sort of come come naturally that's interesting that's I was the kid that like if we had like a family art show I would put mine out there and they're like not even my mom would buy it for like five cents that's how bad I was and you can see from we have both of our notebooks out here and you know this is like the second episode that we're talking notebooks I had Ralph Barcy on last week and he has this fancy way that he sets up his notebook but Allie's got these these drawings everywhere it looks beautiful it looks so organized and mine looks terrible so um, that just says you know I guess a, a few things about each of us but um, so so let's get we'll get back into it so um, you're interested and you're, you're clearly passionate about the oil painting and you went into, um, you were just talking about this pre-show, you, were, you went into putting some of your uh, artwork onto coasters <laughs> and that was kind of like your first step in entrepreneurship? <laughs> I did. So this was my side hustle in college and I, I got the nickname Coaster Girl because literally <laughs> I had all of these paintings of UVA. I went to the University of Virginia undergrad and all, if you've ever been to the University of Virginia, 
you'll see that Thomas Jefferson is everywhere and everything kind of feels the same. It all yeah. feels like, you know, it's, it's beautiful, but it sort of looks like all the paintings and drawings were done in the 1800s. And so I have a very colorful, almost whimsical style to my paintings and they were really popular, but I didn't want to be charging, you know, typically artists, then if there's high demand, they jack up the price. Right. I didn't want to do that because it was my friends who wanted them. Right. And I always believed that art should be accessible. And I don't really, I would always say, I don't believe in art with a capital A. I believe in art with a lowercase a. And it should be something that anyone can have and enjoy. And so I decided rather than, you know, making expensive prints even, I just did, I made coaster sets and I Googled, you know, went on Alibaba.com back in the early days of Alibaba and and ordered 2,000 sets of coasters to my then lawn room which was you know smaller than this conference this conference room it, it, it was it was crazy but I I just I sold those things like crazy yeah. <laughs> and it was a good uh good source of cash and so you were it's interesting you kind of like molded your two passions like have, were you always passionate about entrepreneurship or like and making that successful or is it more so like I know I'm gifted. People are interested in what I'm, uh, the artwork that I have, and I just want to help them have it. And, you know, I want them to enjoy my pieces. Or is it more like, I want this to be a business and I want money and all that stuff? I would be a far wealthier entrepreneur if I <laughs> did. I wish I liked making money a little bit more. It probably would have served me well. No, it's, it's always been about sharing for me. And it's not... It doesn't say, I don't mean to sound, you know, kumbaya and altruistic. That's not really what it is. It's more just this idea of spreading something and spreading this, you know, place like these UVA coasters. It sounds silly, but people love UVA. Alums love UVA. And so when they have a set of UVA coasters, I still, many years later, get photos of people's coffee tables wow. of like, hey, I was thinking of you, you know, I, I really miss school, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, it brings joy to people. And it, it's always been like that for me. Um, I, I've never, never really gotten the, the thrill out of making, you know, bringing in the dollars. It's more been about kind of sharing and spreading an idea or, or, you know, a feeling something, building something bigger. Got it. And, and so, you went from that, from the coasters to actually selling your artwork, right? Either in college or after college. Is that is that true? You're kind of like shaking your head at me, like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was mainly a products business. So it was mainly coasters and okay. like a couple of prints, um, and it was always a, it was always a side hustle. So yeah. it was never a full time thing. Okay. Um, I then really started working full time at Bain doing. Mm -hmm you know, as a management consultant here in San Francisco. And there wasn't too much time to be right. <laughs> to be uh, doing side hustles, especially those early years of Bain. So it kept me busy. Right. And so did you go to Bain, like, knowing that you wanted experience or connections or um, something so you could become an entrepreneur? Did you think that was, like, the route that you wanted to go on? I did not think I was going to be an entrepreneur. Um yeah. I knew I loved learning and I was obsessed with Bain. I thought it was my dream job because it was really difficult and particularly in the beginning and just the learning curve was insane and the people around me were all 
far smarter than I was. And I just had this feeling of, I just want to sponge up everything I can from the people in this room. And they were a ton of fun too. And I just, it, it showed me that, you know, <laughs> learning, you, you learn more when you're having fun with people yep. and you learn more from people that you really like. And Bain just was, it set my bar so insanely high. And I'm really grateful for that because I was a part of, you know, incredible teams. And some of those people are some of my best friends still today. That's, that's awesome. So then what, what happened? Why'd you leave? Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So I had this point, uh, it was my second I just I just gotten promoted to you know senior associate and we had this opportunity to do an externship um, and I knew I wanted to do something something you know in education something um, that would kind of make me feel creative again because I was st- the learning curve as I mentioned had kind of slowed and I actually had kind of a shakeup in my personal life where one of my best friends from college. He died suddenly in a skiing accident and it just it really shook my worldview mm. because I looked around and I was learning a lot of Bane but I realized I actually you know went back east for her for her funeral and Bane was very very like kind and understanding but I was gone for a while and I realized when I when I came back the work had still continued I'd been gone and the work had still continued. Mm. And it was this feeling of like, anyone could be doing this. Mm. Their training is so strong that like anyone could do this. But what is it that I, only I can do? Like, what is my mark going to be on the world? And that was the hard question that I started asking kind of during that externship process of, yeah, what is something that, literally only I, that I have to do because I'm the one to do it and ended up spending six months and then went back full time, uh, but taught design thinking and entrepreneurial leadership at African Leadership Academy in Johannesburg. And it was, I will always look back on that time as maybe the, maybe the best years of my life. I mean, it was just an absolutely transformative experience and helped me, gave me the space, quite frankly, to figure out the answer to that question. So, so what, and I want to get into the answer to the question, but what exactly were you doing in South Africa? And like, what lessons were you teaching? And, and maybe what lessons did you learn from the experience? Oh, man, that's a full that's a full week of podcasts, <laughs> but I'll try to be brief. So I went initially as sort of a chief of staff role okay. to, you know, the, the two founders were ex-consultants and they are smart guys. They knew they could they could get in some, you know burnout consultants to help them with some of the operations and but then a teaching position opened up in the entrepreneurial leadership department which is basically yeah as mentioned design thinking and startup Um, and I was like what the heck I'll give it a shot and I started teaching and it was kids from you know 45 different countries across Africa secondary school students so you know the equivalent of juniors and seniors in high school and I taught them how to start businesses. And we worked together. We had this amazing department of other teachers and yeah. we worked together for this you know, whole class of a hundred or so students. And we literally ran an economy on campus called the Student Enterprise Program. 
And so we taught them how to go from here's this idea, we called it the original idea for development, and we workshopped it, and we taught them the you know, business model canvas, how to, uh, how to pitch for funding. We had an investment council. Wow. They literally were pitching for you know, a share of a pool of funds that we had, we had allocated. They had board meetings wow. from local you know, business people in the Johannesburg economy, and oh, it was incredible. I mean, just one of the biggest lessons I, tur- I took out of that was, you know, at Bain, everything was so role-driven and hierarchical. And there was this feeling of, okay, I'm not qualified to do that. Or, like, this is my job and that's not my job. And by seeing, I had these entrepreneurs who were far younger than I was, far less, quote-unquote, qualified than I was, and yet they had more entrepreneurial guts than I ever did. Mm -hmm. And just seeing, like, you don't need anyone to give you permission. Young people are completely capable of doing far more than we give them credit for. And there's nothing that should be holding us back. Yeah. And I'd say we're young as well. Yeah. So I, I have so, I have so many questions here. Um, so bring me to day one of you're going in there, you teach the class and however many kids there are from 45 countries and it's your job to go day one. Like what is day one of anyone listening here that wants to be an entrepreneur? Like what's the first step? Is the first step the idea is might be my guess. And if it is, how do they come up with that idea? It's such a good question. So I would say it depends. It there are different types of entrepreneurs, right? There are some type of entrepreneurs who are serial entrepreneurs or just they just love the the ride. They just love the idea of starting a business. And those you know, so they can literally go through and systematically evaluate different types of ideas and say, this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Usually those types of people come up with a team first yep. and then the idea. As you can tell I was not one of those those people. I wish I had been. <laughs> but yeah. I'm much more then I'm much more in the other camp, which is you get this idea that just takes over your life. And it just gets in your head. And for me, it was this question, right, of what if, you know, here I had been teaching art, teaching creativity, all these things. And I just had this realization of I can't, I literally don't have enough time in my life to teach all the people I want to teach. Okay. Like you, Training, you can only train as many people as are in the classroom, right? Yep. And so what if... We could take those, take that skills and that, those not that knowledge, and embed it into a tool so that anyone had that skill. And that, to me, was like the burning question of, what if? Like, what if we could build a program to take this process that I've been doing my whole life, I've been teaching in all the classrooms, and put it into a software tool, and truly democratize it? Uh, and that completely consumed me. And so I was that type of entrepreneur where you're just like. You're dreaming about it. You're uh, you're literally in love with it. You're in love with the idea, and it evolves over time, and it tests you. And there are some days where I'm like, "Oh, this is a stupid idea. What was I thinking? Like, <laughs> yeah. this is so dumb." Particularly in the early days, mm-hmm. and then you have fewer and fewer doubts like that, and then you start to. But it's it's that vision that keeps keeps you going. Um, so to kind of answer your. You know, your, your question was, what's the first step? And I'd say 
the first step is really identifying what type of entrepreneur you want to be. Are you in it for the ride or are you in it to see a vision through? If you're in it for if you're in it for the ride, team first. Build your team. Figure out who you want to work with because that is what's most important. If you are in it for the vision, uh, yeah, I mean, team if you can, but it's it's more difficult because those people are harder to find because yeah. they, ultimately it's – and this is a challenge I've run into, to be honest, is it's hard to find other people who love the idea as much as you do. Mm. It takes a while to find those people, yeah. so it's hard. Interesting. So you let's so you're you're the second type of entrepreneur in this scenario. I've never been I've never heard it described that way. I think that's really interesting. Um but you're so you're the second type. You have the vision, it consumes you, you're obsessed, and it's in the like software space generally is like this idea that you're trying to actualize. And at that point, um I don't think you had any experience of programming or building software. And so what is, what's the step that you took to make that a reality? And like, maybe even if it was more general, like, let's just say that, you know, Cindy is listening to this podcast and she's like, well, I've had this idea for three months, but like, I just don't know the step to take. And that was actually a question I got from someone I work with. It was like, like, I, you know, what what is the actual step that you take and how do you make it happen cuz everyone has ideas but like very few people can actualize it the step for for me was spending $1800 on an upwork freelance software developer mm-hmm. so it was this you know I was in a class at Stanford called the D School Launchpad. I'd come in with this idea, be like, look, I've got this amazing concept. And they're like, okay, cool, that's not a product. Uh, and they yeah. said, uh, the, 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 the class had constant weekly challenges. And so they said, okay, by next week, you have to have a functioning prototype. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I didn't even know. I had no idea what how software even worked, yeah. right? Much less that there were different types. I didn't know anything. Yeah. And so I went on Upwork and I found a, you know, contracted developer for, I don't know, $22 an hour and named Mihail and he was in Russia. And I said, okay, I need an app by next week. And he was like, great, send me the screens. I was like, what screens? What's a screen? <laughs> yeah. And he was like, the screens for the app. Like, how in the world do you think I'm going to – like, I'm not a designer. Right. Like, you're you're the supposedly the designer, like, building the screens. And I was like, oh, my God. And if you can believe it, I was not – I was never a digital artist, so I didn't even know how to use Photoshop. Mm. So I did, like, a crash course in Photoshop on Saturday. I pulled an all-nighter that Saturday night, built out the first version of the app, which was an iPhone app called – uh, Viznote, where you could literally drag in icons. I mean, it was, oh, it was, I mean, embarrassing, but pretty crazy, actually. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, the first step really is it's putting some kind of investment. Like, whether it's your, you know, time is tricky because we don't value our time the way we should. Yep. We do not value our time enough. If you have $1,800 is no joke when you're in grad school, yeah, right? And then the follow-on, you know, when we had to do an iPad version, it ended up being $3,000. Like, that was no joke. Yeah. 
And yet it made me take it seriously. Mm. It made me say, okay, wait, maybe there is something here. Like I'm willing to invest my money in it and therefore I'm willing to invest my time in it. That's, it's so crazy that you said that because one of the favorite episodes I've ever done of this podcast, we had uh, a motivational psychologist on, Mm -hmm. Ben Hardy, and he was talking about um, his whole uh, thesis for his PhD is um, the point of no return. Mm -hmm. And like the difference between a successful entrepreneur and a entrepreneur that he discovered was a point of no return and putting something in Mm -hmm. financially, an investment um, that puts you to that point. So like an example he gave was like these kids that were like selling shoes or something and they did, they were going half-assed for like a year. And then one day they just spent like 10 grand, which was like all the money they had on all these, on all the inventory. And they're like, well, we're going for it now. Mm-hmm. And so that's interesting. Cause then it's like, you kind of burn the boats. Like, mm-hmm. all right, we're, I'm not wasting 1800 bucks when I barely can, you know, probably afford the school itself. So like, let's do this thing. Um, and I think that's, that's awesome. So the, this sounds crazy, but I think to be an entrepreneur, you have to have some screws loose. One of the best things I did, I got to that point of no return about a year later and realized I had put in all, you know, I had put in all the money I had. We hadn't raised any friends and family money yet um, and had to sell my car. And at the time, I remember watching, watching, it was like my last asset, right? And I'm like, oh God, like I, I messed up. I was like, give it back, give it back. Um, but watching the car drive off, it was like this feeling of, uh, you know, the pit in your stomach. And then it was followed with like this freedom. Mm. It was really weird mm. because once you've gotten, once you're on that track, and again, this, my specific example is financial but you there are lots of different lots of different ways you can look at this once you're on the track you're like i'm on the track and now i don't have to compare myself to anyone else i don't have to compare my car to anyone else's car because i don't have a car (laughs) you know like you're kind of free and it's then you're not only do you have more resources but you are you're committed and i think that's that's the biggest step you can really make wow so that's a year after you did that upwork. That's when you, or about, you sold the car. So, another question that was posed to me by you know, a friend of mine that that they wanted to ask you was like, as an entrepreneur, and especially in this type of a scenario where like you're in a heated environment at Stanford, and like I can only imagine some of the other people that were in there, and whether the ideas were good or not, like they probably like sounded really good and like you know we're we're super geniuses and people were probably telling you no all the time and doubting your idea and you you mentioned you were doubting your idea and i imagine you hear no a hundred times a day still to this day like what makes you so sure that your idea is great and then what keeps you pushing through all that It's it's such a good question and probably the hardest muscle to build and mm-hmm. the most important as well. So the way, oh my gosh, yeah, I won't even start down the path of telling you all the times that I've heard no, but I can say in the beginning, it was constant. And it's not just like, no, this isn't a good idea, right? It's like, oh, your doodles are cute. 
you know like it's demeaning demeaning like, yeah. yeah it's like it's like people who don't they can't see what you see and so they think you're freaking nuts yeah and you are nuts but it's hard because you see this amazing future and yet the reality is and particularly if you're you know paying someone 20 dollars an hour on upwork like the product is a joke right right and so people are like why did you just why are you giving up you know, the path to go back to Bain so you can do an icon app, like, for drawing. What? It doesn't right. even make sense. Right. Um, but I think the way that you know you're onto something is if the percentage of people who tell you no starts going down. Mm-hmm. And you start to hear more yeses. Right? Like, if you think of, again, I'm seeing a chart here, but like an area chart, right, where in the beginning, it is 100% of people telling you no. Mm-hmm. And then it gets down to 999 and then it's like 99.8. Mm-hmm. And then it starts going down and down and down and down. And don't get me wrong, like now it's still probably a solid like 70%. Right. But those 30%, oh man, they, they it. it's not even that they, it's like you just appreciate, you're like, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Customers, investors, like any, someone random from LinkedIn, like when someone believes in you, and again, it's something, if you had started, with half the people telling you yes, you wouldn't appreciate that 30%. Right. But you started with everyone telling you no. And so every single person who says yes means the world. And it's that's when you know you're onto something, when that number is going down. Mm. That's interesting. I like that a lot. And I, I think that that's such a huge piece of, like, not only entrepreneurship, but just, like, anything that you want to be good at is, like, mm-hmm. Like, for example, like, you know, I put out, I had a ton of anxiety about creating the podcast, which is nothing at all like selling your car on an app idea that is being built or it's a, or it's a, or it's a much scaled down version, I'll say. But, you know, I would get comments all the time from like some of my buddies, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why are you Mm -hmm. like posting this stuff? And like all this and that, like, why aren't you come like out and get beers while I'm finishing up this recording on Friday night or whatever it is. And like, to me, that didn't even matter, but it's true. Like I didn't think about it till now, but it's like, well, some of those people that were like kind of shitting on it in the first like month, like nine months later, they're like, not all of them, but some are like, Oh, like pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Or like, you'll see them like tweeted out or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's not a lot, but it's just like that Mm -hmm. small little piece. It like kind of like keeps the engine going a little bit, which I, I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's particular. So the great, you don't have to sell your car to feel that, right? right. I mean, I would say risk goes down in chunks and you got to start somewhere. And mm-hmm. I think the, the easiest way to the, to the listeners out there who are in sales in particular, the best way to, to build this muscle is content and mm. is LinkedIn, right? Yep. And I made this pact to myself starting in about August of last year that I was going to put statuses out there every single day. Yep at least during the weekdays. And in the beginning, I mean, I truly had people texting me like, what in the heck are you doing? Like, I don't want to see any more selfie videos. Like, <laughs> you know, and every time I'd see them, they'd be like, night, okay, we've got an influencer here. You know, because it's, it's all these people who aren't creating content, right? right? And right. so yep. to them, you look crazy. Yep. But now I've built up an audience of thousands of people who right. actually care and more and more people are doing it and all those people who tell you you're nuts are starting to do it as well. Right. And 
The second piece of that is out of 100 pieces of content you create, 80 of them are going to be awful. Right. But that's not why we create content. We create content for like those five pieces in the past six months that have, you know, been shared hundreds and thousands of times like that's what you create it for and i think that's what people get get a little bit confused in the beginning because they think the bar is too high right and you know if i were to make two points on that one is like you know the people that even on the last side like where people do turn around and like those few people that really do appreciate it like for like 50 people that say like what the hell are you doing that one person Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. you know messages me on linkedin and is like like, mm-hmm. I hate my job, but, like, you know, I listened to that episode and it inspired me. Or, mm-hmm. you know, one guy has, like, done a weight loss challenge, like, mm-hmm. and he's locked down, like, 40 pounds. And, like, mm-hmm. that is, like, that's all you need. Like, that keep yep. that gives you the energy for a month. Yep. And, um, you know, the other piece is, like, the more you create content, like, the more creative you get. Yep. Like, I wasn't – I enjoy being creative, and I think I was in, like, there's some classes in college I liked, but, like, you're somewhat creative in sales, but like not in the way of like creating something. Mm-hmm. And in the last like six, nine months of doing this every single day, like now, like I'm just having ideas about things and like my brain is moving and it's just crazy. Like if you start to do something, just like you start to run, like, you know, a month later, six months later, you can start running farther. So um, it's just kind of like getting that muscle built up. And just thinking about so where the world again, not to get too meta on us here, but let's get meta. Where the world <laughs> is going is you, technology will replace you if you aren't mm. creative. Yeah, your job will get automated if you aren't creative, and yeah. so you're right. I mean, a lot, particularly in sales, it's it's very easy to go through the motions, and that's a big piece of the job. However, if you don't find new ways to truly connect with your customers, truly add value, truly like create content that helps them creatively solve their problems, you're gonna lose your job. So it's it's not even it's not like a oh this is nice to have, it makes me feel good and fulfilled. It's it's also like a survival thing. And and we don't think of it that way because we don't like the idea of being automated, but I don't know, I I take a step back every once in a while and I'm like, okay, how much of how much of my job am I really putting my brain into? Right. Um, and I, I would say that's that to me is a huge case for entrepreneurship <laughs> because it's it's not linear. It's not you know work that you can automate most of it. It's yeah. it's like really intellectually challenging, emotionally challenging work. Uh, and so, yeah, I think I mean creativity is. As automation rises, you know, creativity just becomes more and more important. Yeah. And and to stick on that piece, you know, I know there's a lot of listeners that are in sales. I'm in sales. And we were talking a little bit before this about, you know, the how the sales cycle has changed, how content is becoming more and more important. And you said, like, in order to be a good salesperson, you have to be a good teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is on the same vein, but I'd love for you to explain that a little bit. Yeah. So you, you wouldn't... Th- the sales and education, I, I see them as one and the same, and I'll make the case for it. But you know, even if as a sales leader, your job is to train and onboard reps. That's education. Those reps then have to guide your buyers through the process. That's education. Um, and and you know, if if they're just kind of spewing stock content, 
guess what? Your buyer already looked at that on the website. So you have to be a teacher in the sense that you got to ask good questions and you got to like have a goal in mind and you've got to guide them there and you've got to provide that service again, that like the (laughs) tools and email automation can't do. Um, and I think that having, you know, mainly driven by kind of a shift in the shift in business models from being really high value enterprise, you know, multi-million dollar deals to smaller, you know, 10 to 15 K CV deals. Like it's not a one and done thing. Mm -hmm. You're not set when you land a $10,000 deal because you spent, the company spent way more than that to land that customer in a lot of cases. And it's really about the revenue that is generated over the five year life cycle of that customer. And so that means your, your content generation, your meetings, materials, everything, it's, it's all over the place. You know, it's not just closing the deal. It's setting them up for success, making sure they're using the product, making sure they're getting value out of the product, seeing opportunities for them to get more value. It is a constant recurring relationship rather than this one, you know, one and done uh, presentation being performed. Yeah. And it's, it's really true. I mean, especially if you are a sales rep that is part of the full sales cycle and like, you know, you're, you're going from prospecting, you're setting the meetings. And once you sell things, you know, you're responsible for the relationship after, which I think a lot of reps are. And like, if you're not finding new ways to add value, whether it's, um, in teaching them or having it, you know, challenging their, their thoughts on the current market and like, you know, how you can better serve them or going out of your way to make them feel special or doing something that's unique. Like it doesn't matter how long you've been working together. There's so many other people that are going after that business that will do that, that you're going to lose it. And, you know, I've lost customers before. I think anyone that's in sales has. And, you know, I think if you put your full attention on them, like, those are the ones that you don't lose. And there's going to be some that you lose in the future. But if you if you put your best foot forward, you yeah. really stack the odds in your favor. And again, because I, I would say connect the dots too. Like price is less important now Yeah. because the deals are smaller. And so it's not the price is not important, but it's less important. I think what's, what's more important, people are willing to spend, to spread value out over time mm-hmm. if you have a rep who cares about you yeah. and you have someone to go to. Right. I mean, it makes, I can't tell you how many products I have purchased even in the past like few months as we sort of set up our our, our uh, tech stack. Like I have purchased products that are more expensive because the service is just way better. Mm-hmm. And the service, it's not just reps throwing content at me and being like, oh, check out this case study. Right. It's like, asking me questions saying what problems can I help you solve and I'm like I'm totally overwhelmed how in the world do I set up my you know Salesforce and HubSpot in the same day like how making sure my integrations are you know and and just being like time out yeah like step one and it's it's not just like oh here you know read this check out our help center google it it's more like empathy meet you where you are I think one of the last thing I'll say on that is one of the most, it's actually, this is a HubSpot rep who I was talking to recently. <laughs> he said, you know what? I was like, I just feel, you know, disorganized. I feel like I've got things everywhere. Like, I just need to streamline. He just said, this is typical. <laughs> he said, I talk to lots of companies who feel this way. Yeah. And just that simple, like, 
you're normal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Like, I think that's, we're all kind of trying to do the best we can. Right. Like, none of us are doing perfect. And to have someone be like, look, I see this problem. You only see this problem in one company. Right. Because this is your company, right? And this is one of 50 problems on your head in a d- given time. I get to see this problem in 50 companies. And right. let me tell you, you're within the normative band, yeah. you know? Or, no, you got to get... Or you you're gotta, crazy. <laughs> or you're, you've you, lost your mind. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's, that's huge. And so let's wrap this up. Three rapid-fire questions for you. Um, and we'll keep these answers quick. Yep. And we'll see what we come out with. So number one, you're clearly um, a learning machine, um, you know, a lot of success in a lot of different fields, really, but, but currently in the entrepreneurship field. What is holding you back from reaching the next level of Allie McKee? See, no, uh, appreciating my limitations. I still am in the mindset of I can do it all. And therefore, I should be able. I should be expected to do this all. That's not true. Nothing great is achieved by one person. Mm. All of the great things are achieved by teams and by organizations. And the goal now is to go from being scrappy solo entrepreneur mm-hmm. to truly building an organization that outlasts me. Wow, I like that. So the delegating, recruiting, getting the team. I like that a lot. Um, what is What's your superpower? Like, what are you a master at if there were only one thing? Sponging. I love just. I don't know if that's a verb, but I like it. It is now. (laughs) Yeah, it's like learning from all different types of. Like, a typical Saturday morning for me is reading you know, reading a book on, a little bit of a book on history, a little bit of, Mm. you know, a book on like Keith Haring's, you know, life as a subway artist and like a little bit of the New York Times, you know, just this constant, uh, you know, as a result, like my brain kind of moves all over the place, but I think just this constant ability to get information from lots of different places and that's what gives me energy too. What are you reading right now? Uh, I just. This isn't a rapid fire question. This is just a selfish question. Yeah. So I've just started. Um, I just finished short history of progress, which gives you a really good perspective on life is life is long and also very short. We got a lot of stuff to do yeah. <laughs> to make a difference that actually matters. And then uh, I just started uh, the power of the other. And another one of my favorites from last week has been um, Never Split the Difference. I feel like I, I go back to that book every month. Just People love great. that. I, mm-hmm. It's on my list, but people keep telling me. They keep telling me I need to get that guy. What's his name? Chris Voss or something yeah. on the podcast. So I got to get into that one. The other Power of the Other. I haven't heard of that one. Yeah. Um, all right. Last one for you. What is the number one thing? You've been doing all these improv classes, so I've been seeing on LinkedIn. I'm fascinated by it. For the listeners that may not know, I did stand-up comedy once in college. It was a riot. It was one of the scariest things I've ever done, but I'm curious from improv, like what's the one takeaway that you've had from those classes? The power of team. You know, to... Yeah, it's. I actually went to see Dana Carvey last night in L.A. for the, you know, $10 Sunday night show. And... You know, stand-up is hard because you're up there alone. And I think improv is just, again, sort of a common theme for me right now. But the power of a good partner. If you have a good partner, man, you can do anything. I really recently was in a uh, scene 
feeding monkeys in a zoo. And then, uh, yeah, it was like, it was a kind of a weird scene, but I had a good partner and we had a good time. Yeah. And, um, you know, it just gives you so much confidence and it gives you, it unlocks all of your creative ability. Wow. I like that. Um, and I guess that goes back to the thing that's holding you back and kind of like two yeah. lessons in one. Um, all right. Well, Allie McKee, you have been super generous with your time. This has been a hoot. The last thing for you is, you know, any last words for the audience? And then where can we find you? Where can we find Stick? Mm-hmm. What's coming up? Yeah. What's going on? So, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Please follow and, uh, you know, comment and feedback. As I said, I love taking risks with content and hearing from hearing from people. The biggest message I have for you, no matter what you're doing, is just persistence. So much of the game is just continuing to do it. And that sounds overly simple, but truly, it's all just about continuing to wake up and do it and just realize, looking around and realizing how many people have your back who you may not realize on a day-to-day basis. Um, but you're not alone. Keep going and we'll crush it together. (laughs) Love it. Well, I'm fired up. It's about 8 o'clock on a Monday night, and I'm ready to go make some cold calls. I'm ready to do this. So, Allie, Allie, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much. (laughs) A ton of fun. All right. And just when you thought she was about to end the episode, she came in with that piece on persistence. So much of the game is continuing to do it. I love that. Absolutely love it. Um, I want to just give you a quick, uh, quick rundown of my takeaways from the episode. Uh, you know, number one, when we talked about what did you do when you were 11 or eight or however old, you know, that's what you should be trying to do now. I mean, that's why I'm podcasting. That's why I'm writing. That's why, you know, I love sales and I love business and, and all these things because that's what I like to do when I was running my sports newspaper when I was 10 years old. So find that thing. It might not be your career, but at least find a way to keep doing it. Um, you know, another piece that I loved was, you know, she broke down the two types of entrepreneurs. There's people that love the ride and there's people that just the idea becomes an obsession and she's so clearly the second type. And I just think that was a really cool way of breaking it down. Um, hearing no, when does she think that you're successful is when you hear no less. And it's not like you get like 80% yeses. It's like you go from 0.1 0.1 to 0.5 percent yeses, and you just go little by little by little, and um, you know I think that's awesome, and it speaks to the persistence piece. And you know, for anyone out there that's working on, you know, their side hustle, or they're working on a business, or they're working on their career, or a relationship, or anything like it's all persistence and keep pushing forward. And I thought she was, um, you know, she's a great example of that. And you know, I love having Allie on the show again. If you found any value here. Uh, please head on over, rate, share it out, uh, join the newsletter, join the mission. Uh, let me know what you think. Let me know if there's anyone you want to see on here. I'm having a blast. Thanks again to Allie. Thanks again to you, the listener. Uh, for without you, this would not be possible. So without further ado, I hope you have a great rest of your week. Out.